from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast, and I am Perry, and we're back. Hey, it's MJ. And this is Mark. We didn't go anywhere, though. Actually, we didn't go anywhere. We're back from last week. We're We're back from last week. listeners. I thought of that when I was saying Uh, We're all, so we did. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, welcome. We're in the time warp. The tiny house time warp. It's it's like little tiny waves instead of the big normal ones. I'm getting all scientific for no reason. No apparent (laughs) reason. So, um, wow, we have... Uh, great things going on in um, Portland yep. relative to housing. Very interesting uh, activity happening. But I, wanna, I, wa- I would like to spend most of our preamble this morning ambling about what's going on with Michelle because Michelle has got some really great things going on, don't you, Michelle? I do. I'm well, walking on cloud nine this morning. Right on. It's I'm walking on cloud fluffy nine. fluffy cloud nine. It is. Because so much good stuff is happening. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very proud of her. Thank you, thank and you. And what she's accomplishing and has accomplished with all the things she's doing tiny. So why don't we just kick it off? What's the first thing that you've got going on that's so cool? Well, I launched <clears throat> my tiny house, which is um, now listed on Airbnb and HomeAway and VRBO and Try It Tiny. I have about four or five different listing platforms. Um, I've had six, I think, six or seven guests so far. I have all five-star reviews and only a couple little dramatic blips in my in my little... Uh, oh, in my, I was going to say, you know we want to hear the drama. <laughs> we definitely want to hear the drama. The so tiny drama. one of them actually happened with a guest. It was a one-night stay. I They raved... They arrived late at night, like 11.30 midnight was when they arrived. So I waited till the next morning at about, you know, 9 a.m. Checkout's at 11 a.m. So They came in at midnight and they had to check out at 11? Yes. So I waited till like 9 a.m. because Mm -hmm. I always check in with them via text. Mm -hmm. Hope you're enjoying your stay. Please let me know if you have any questions. You're so good. Thank you. So she came back and said, we're uh, currently out at breakfast. Just wanted to let you know we have no hot water, no biggie. We don't need it. Why didn't they have hot water? Well, Michelle? first of all, for me, exactly for me, not having hot water is kind of a big deal Same when you're renting me. a place. Like Hail you get up in the morning yes. and you take yeah. a shower. Yeah. So I texted them back because they're at breakfast, and I said, "Hey, I'm. Would you allow me the opportunity to go down and please address the hot water issue?" She's like, "Yeah, sure. We're not there. No big deal." So I went down there, and as it turns out, I learned this later. But I went down there and I pushed the reset button, and it was fine. Oh, this is a hot wa- uh, instant hot water heater. Correct. Is that what it- so mm-hmm. I I figured out then the day before we had like a thirty second power outage. It wasn't a brownout. Uh, yeah. It was a flat. It was yeah. a go dark for thirty yeah. seconds, like power outage. And go dark in 30. and <laughs> I now know that whenever the power goes out, the hot water heater for some weird reason needs to be reset. Mm, maybe that's something you can put on a sign somewhere. If you don't have hot water before you contact me, push this button. Press you. Yeah. Except for the fact that the button is behind the refrigerator. Oh shit. Mm. Yeah. So What's it, why is it behind the refrigerator, <laughs> Michelle? That's just one more step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Move, Move the refrigerator. refrigerator push the button. The button. Well, no that's works. true. And the refrigerator easily slides out. Like it's not a big deal. But actually, I put it behind the refrigerator because I don't want people fucking with it. Oh, that's a good point. I guess you could say push the refrigerator real hard against the wall and it'll push the button. <laughs> it'll push the button for you. The second one is a little bit more dramatic. Uh-huh. Um, we have a rule that says no parties. 
And <laughs> so, so wait, I just got to stop you for a second. Yeah. How big of a party can you have in a tiny house? I that don't small? know. Well, and then you have to think about what constitutes a party. That's a good point. If you have a couple people over and you're staying in a tiny house and you're renting and you have a couple people over, like, is that a party? Do you have to have music? Do you have to be loud? Do you like, like Where's what? the band? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we have a rule that says no parties. Yeah. Um, for maybe obvious reasons. But apparently our guest had a somewhat secretive and extremely quiet party in the middle of a, it was about 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. So after she left, um, my neighbors were like, hey, uh, just thought I'd let you know, our driveway was blocked by four trucks. Wait, um, so so the, na- the neighbors who you're renting? the property from or the other neighbors down the street? The ones across the street yeah. from us, oh, wow. their driveway was blocked oh, because people had showed up mm-hmm. and not, luckily, not gone down mm-hmm. the full length because mm-hmm. there's no way you yeah. get four or five vehicles turned around yeah, in yeah, that yeah, little yeah, baby no. section down yeah. there. So <laughs> luckily they knew enough not to go down there, but they completely blocked the neighbor's driveway. Now it's two o'clock in the morning yeah. on Sunday. The only reason why she even knew is because she let the dog out or something and noticed they were there. Um, but I was wondering that actually, however, put a put a period on the sentence that I was forming in my mind. How do two people in Have one night? No, no, okay. no, because no, I didn't know at the time. Again, this is this is two days after they left. Again. So immediately after they left, yeah. I was asking myself, how did two people in one night overfill the urine container on the composting toilet? A lot of beer. They must, yeah, it must have been more than two people. Right. They had, they must, I don't know how many people they had. I don't know how long they were there. Or they drank a lot of fucking beer. Mm-hmm. But that's the weird thing, too. They took all the garbage with them. Well, that that's a nice thing. Well, because they didn't want any evidence of a party, apparently, but they didn't apparently. realize that the evidence of the party was the overflowed urine container. Was it them. really overflowed? Oh, yeah, it was completely overflowed. But it's- doesn't, but doesn't your composting toilet. It, it has an overflow container. Well, not only that, but it. Okay, so it flowed into the container. Correct. Okay. But it's still, you know, we'll just call it additional clean and not a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. But when you consider that my urine container for two people living there full time only has to be emptied every two weeks. Well, I was going to, I'm just in my head thinking about the urine container in my uh, little tiny house and having to empty my pee and what that smells like after three days. Right. I just can't imagine emptying someone else's pee. (laughs) It's not, a little weird. I have a, to admit. Yeah, I bet. I have to admit. It's a little weird, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, it's sterile. It was new. That's, it was well, sterile actually, to them. Well, <laughs> and it was actually pr- almost like pretty watered down. Like it wasn't, you know. Because of all the beer. <laughs> pretty watered down. It just had a minty aftertaste. I don't know. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was, those are my two little hitches in my getup. But the place was clean. Hmm. Um, like I said, they took all the garbage with them, probably because they wanted to dispose of the party evidence. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And however, they did leave a frozen pizza in the freezer. Frozen, uneaten? Yes. That's great. Yeah, because they didn't realize when they bought the frozen pizza that I don't have an oven. It's a frozen peach and a bunch, a bunch of Bic lighters. <laughs> actually, actually, they did leave Bic lighters in the garbage can. 
Oh, it must have been some pot action going on. I know, but the house didn't smell like it, which means they probably were outside and they were probably quiet. Yeah. Because I live 100 feet away and I didn't hear anything. So, 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 so we're kind of running out of time for the preamble, so but I go. do want to get to the other, the other one, which is even no, in my let's opinion. Do it on the no, next show. Okay. We'll oh, that's punch. true. We'll yeah, punch. we can fund that. Okay. Speaking of full Speaking urine of, containers, exactly. Full <laughs> urine containers <laughs> and, containers. and neighbors getting pissed off and not in my backyard and all that kind of goofy crap that goes on in the all tiny the house. Challenges tiny house movement. host space. Yeah. <clears throat> this is just like NPR. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to say, relative to NPR, we sound really good with all this technology we have in here. Oh my god, we just keep putting machines in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I came in today and I was like, damn. I know. It's this like makes me studio. seem like I'm like a real podcast hostess or something. <laughs> exactly. We will post a real picture. I was just going to say, we should take some pictures of this yeah. place. Anyway. Um, the lighting sucks. So our guest, our guest today um, is Luke Eisman. He and his, I'm going to say cohort because I don't know whether or not Heather Stewart is in relationship with Luke or not, but they together somehow had a piece of property. And their piece of property in, in the Bay Area, it looks like Oakland, although I thought it was San Francisco, but they say Bay Area, was um, zoned for basically um, a garden beds. And these two uh, in- intrepid individuals decided to attempt to throw a couple of um, shipping container houses onto their the property and and before they knew it they had more than two and now they had a little then they had a little com- community and just like with Michelle's neighbors the neighbors <laughs> to that property <laughs> went up in happy. arms they were not happy and so we're ch- we're calling like two years later I think it was to uh, see what has gone on with this story because it's really interesting and I'm sure Luke is going to provide us with more background than I just did so Luke welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a uh, it's certainly been an adventure with the neighbors to put it to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> so so give us a rundown what, what how this how this whole thing transpire and how'd you get on NPR and all that stuff. Um so basically this started because I have been for a long time fascinated with shipping containers and that fascination turned into pretty much an obsession upon moving to the Bay Area about five and a half years ago. And as as I'm sure most listeners know, it's just crazy expensive to find somewhere to rent or to buy here. Most people, even if they're making six figures, just kind of have given up on the idea that they might ever be able to buy a home, which is, to me, more than a little crazy. Like, people are simultaneously very wealthy, but also very stressed out about, like, whether they can compete well enough in this crazy rental market to find a house they consider desirable. Yeah. So we did that for a while. Heather and I lived in, in San Francisco uh, for about a year, and it was just stunning how much of our income we were spending on rent for a really shitty apartment with a totally unresponsive landlord. Like, mm-hmm. basic stuff like the tub was leaking I didn't know into how water. the bathroom floor. <laughs> I mean, it, Michelle, it made, it made your place. If those had been the issues, I would have been like, this is the best apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> this was like, this was me calling the landlord and being like, hey, the bathroom floor is going to collapse if you don't spend $20 or let me know that you're okay with me. I'll do it for free. It's just obnoxious. Like, it's literally leaking out of the tub into the surrounding wood and going to just make the tub fall through the floor after another year or two. You might want to fix this. And that's totally normal. I mean, that's like on the better side of landlord problems here. Um, so eventually we started thinking about like, what could we, 
do with if we set our budget to set the rent that we were paying, which was like I think it was almost four thousand dollars a month for, oh, rent. for, 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 like, for what? A oh, crappy for, one bedroom. This was, a, this was in the Mission, the most expensive rental neighborhood in the country. For mm. four bedroom, I wish. This was, uh, I think our total rent was 4600 and that included oh. a small garage, oh and it was uh, two bedrooms. So, of course, we had to have a housemate who, you know, there, there were issues with, to put it mildly. Um, we had a small private yard because we wanted a space for our dog um, and a small garage, wow. and that combination made it, frankly, that was, like, pretty much, that was, that was, below market price, if anything. Like, we were lucky to find that, oh, as shit. crazy as that sounds. So we started thinking about, like, what can we actually do with, you know, our, our chunk of the rent was a little under 3000 Um, What could we do with that per month? We just kept our housing budget the same. And one of the first things I realized was that we could buy containers. Like, we could literally buy an empty shipping container per month for what we were paying for this crappy apartment. <laughs> Like that's how that's how strange the economics become. Yeah. Um, so eventually, we we're like, I wonder if we could find somewhere where we could put a container or two or more. And in what the the Bay Area is really strange, and I'm kind of obsessed with real estate because it's like so irrational how sprawl happens mm-hmm. and like what neighborhoods become expensive. So I'm talking to you from one of our one of my spaces in West Oakland and. If you want to be in downtown San Francisco in Barcadero, it's like the center that's you know right on the water. Um, most people who work in technology or restaurants, the main neighborhoods for that are the next couple, the next couple subway stops from there. So basically, in Barcadero, a ten-minute subway ride gets you to West Oakland, which is one mile from my house. So it's this really central by commute time and by geography and really increasingly developed neighborhood but it's still so much cheaper to cross the bridge, to cross either over the bridge in your car or under the bridge on, on the subway, drops the cost to like half on average. Wow. And there's a, lot, there's a lot less, it's changing, but there's still a lot less development here. So we were able to find an empty lot to rent for, it was a quarter acre that we were able to rent, the other quarter acre was just sitting vacant, so we were kind of able to sprawl on that. So basically, we got half an acre for, I think it was a thousand dollars a month. Wow! So, Luke, when you so got basically, sorry, when you got that property, did you know what you could put on it and what you couldn't put on it? I kind of just made a lucky guess that it was still an undeveloped enough neighborhood mm. that if we just and you know, Oakland's very industrial. I mean, we have one of the largest ports on the coast here, so a couple shipping containers in a yard, you know, certainly weren't that unusual to see in the neighborhood. And I kind of just assumed we'd be okay for long enough to make it interesting and it's growing and we can move them somewhere else. By the way, like, obviously it's quite, quite easy to move these compared to like a permanent house. Mm-hmm. Um, or we just do this and it would be a failure and we'd run out of money and like crawl back to a, to a normal conventional house. <laughs> <laughs> crawl back. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so fast forward about a year, this ended up being, it wasn't making a ton of money, but it was covering our costs. A bunch of our friends moved other small structures from, we had a couple of people in tents for a little while. Oh. Um, even like, right. Um, (laughs) there were a couple, a couple Airstreams eventually, some other brands of RVs, some vans. It's just a cheap place for our artist friends to be able to show up and, 
afford to live without having to get a full-time job. So Luke, I could underst- I could understand how your neighbors were thinking like in this article that we read, they were thinking you, you were basically creating kind of a hippie commune or a shanty town if people were living in tents and airstream trailers and things. Yeah, so this one was you're, you're, the main press with the neighbors was the next property. <laughs> um, <laughs> this one was interesting. This was actually a triangle surrounded by roads. So it was this very strange parcel that had no immediate neighbors. Like we had one neighbor who was also illegally living in a warehouse situation who complained about our dogs barking. But other than that, it was just surrounded by roads. So we didn't really have many neighbor issues with this one. That reminds me of Boneyard uh, Studios in D.C. Yeah. That community mm-hmm. in D.C. had the same sort of, except for it was across the street from a cemetery, but that same triangular roads yeah. on all sides, mm-hmm. no yeah. immediate neighbors kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of weird parcels like that. As you As you walk around the city, you can kind of see like, even in very developed neighborhoods, there's these weird, isolated things that don't quite make sense for normal development. Hmm. Um, so that property ends up getting sold kind of right as we get some attention from the city and complaints from the city. Um, so basically, we had to make a choice between spending three to $5,000 to file a permit or leaving a month before our lease was up. And either way, we'd be gone you know, within a month and a half anyways. So, of course, we decided to just move a month early. Um, really by dumb luck, I'd gotten some friends interested in buying a nearby property with me. So it was six of us. We just formed like an LLC, like a little company for a couple hundred dollars, like a couple pages of paperwork to buy this together. We got pretty lucky on it. I mean, this, this won't sound cheap to people anywhere else in the country, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) at that time it was cheap and it's like a ridiculous deal now that we were able to buy three parcels that were adjacent to each other, one of which had a tiny metal building on it. Well, not tiny, but like 1,200 square foot little warehouse on it. So three parcels, each a tenth of an acre. So 0.3 acres, about a mile and a half from West Oakland BART. So really central in a resident mixed use neighborhood, like residential alternated with warehouses. And we of course had to take out a mortgage on it, but we were able to buy it for $420,000. That so, still sounds good to me. So you couldn't take a mortgage, right? We had to take a mortgage out on it, yeah. and we were able to get one. Um, the reason why I bring that up, about- yeah, the reason why I bring that up is because we had a conversation with Lena. Remember, we were talking specifically about tiny house communities or communities at large that were having a difficult time with these legal legal issues, and and that the, in their instance, the <laughs> LLC forming the LLC wouldn't actually fix the the problem. Couldn't own, couldn't own, own it. it. So that's really interesting. No, so to be clear, for the mortgage, it actually helped. Well, one, we had to put 30% down. Um, so, you know, we had to put in, I think we put in $30,000 each to cover that, and that, which, you know, was the majority of most of our bank accounts, um, to cover that. And then myself and another of the, of the LLC members had to personally co-sign for it. Oh, yeah. Basically, hmm. I think it got written as a normal house loan plus some empty lots that were next to it. Hmm. And it was still a pain. I mean, it's always a pain. Like, I've gotten mortgages, like, three times now. Two normal houses that I fixed up in Austin, Texas. And it's just, all, like, it's just a giant pain in the ass, basically. <laughs> like, I'm sure it'll still be, like, if I continue to do development stuff that needs land, like, it'll still be a pain in the ass 20 years from now on, like, the 50th property or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's just obnoxious. Like, it's obnoxious. And I don't know. I think I know enough about the economic side of it to know that 
it's not like you you can have a more secure financial system or like that we care about that. Like it's not like you're jumping through hoops that matter. It's just a giant inefficient pain in the ass. Like it doesn't result in safer loans being written or anything. Like it's just be annoying to everyone involved. Maybe it's like college. Maybe it's like the fact that when you actually get a degree, that means absolutely nothing more than you were able to put up with the pain in the ass professors (laughs) and jump through all the bullshit assignment notes. Like, I have two kids at college right now, and that sounds exactly like what they've been telling me. Like, it's not that all these professors being a pain in the ass makes it a better education. Yeah, it's just like, hoops to jump through. Yeah. Everybody kind of agrees they're stupid, and yeah, people just keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, we thought we were we were really excited then. We moved our existing containers over. Several of our friends who were there joined us. Um, we've been joking that every time we have an issue that forces us off of a property, we um, we bloom would be what I would describe it as. Other Some neighbors might call it we metastasize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <but> every, <laughs> every time had a property shut down, it's resulted in multiple new properties forming. So really, if the city had just left us alone on this first property, and if the owner hadn't sold it, you know, we'd probably just hang out there and maybe spread the one adjacent. But um, when we got to off the tribal cell. one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tiny house terror cell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> rebrand. Forget box out. <laughs> Um, so we left the triangle. Some of us bought and some, some other people who lived there also joined us at this new property. Some others went to a different property that they rented, uh, like half a mile away. And yeah, it just, it's, it's spread. Um, we thought we were sitting pretty. We owned this property. We didn't have to deal with the landlord selling it out from under us. I, we'd all kind of set everyone's expectations that, look, we're going to be aggressive about pushing the envelope on this. We're going to ask for forgiveness rather than permission for permits and stuff, but we own it. We'll figure it out. So basically without any permits on these two empty, two of them were parking lots and the third had this little building on it. The ones that had parking lot lines, like the yellow lines to Mm -hmm. pull in for spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, We got it. We had to clear off like shotgun shells, needles and blackberry thorns were like the three (laughs) three things covering the lot. Wow. Uh, so it wasn't like this was, we're not dropping into the middle of like the nicest, most pristine neighborhood in the world, to put it mildly. Um, no permits. We just dropped several containers, and again, some trailers, and essentially created a tiny home community with the vision that we would fix up this main building and have it be common, nice facilities for everyone. So it has, it would have multiple, you know, and all up to code and everything, maybe even commercially registered kitchens, (laughs) nice bathrooms, showers, baths, basically like a cool hangout area and something to justify people being comfortable with having a much smaller common, a much smaller private space because they have this luxurious common space. And after a couple months of move-in, we were... Uh, we received an interesting notice from the city. It was a notice of violation for two of the parcels. I, I don't know if many of your listeners or if any of you have gone through the process of getting one of these or trying to interact with planning and zoning. It's um, not the easiest <laughs> thing to understand. And I, I just had the, I mean, I was just entertained throughout it because several of the people who I bought this parcel with are like, I mean, they're among the smartest people I've ever met. And, like, I know a lot of nerds, and these are, like, 
nerds, nerds, like super smart, like you know, MIT degrees, started really innovative technology companies, and we're just sitting in a room, like feeling like we have, like we have missed something basic, like <laughs> that it switched to a foreign language that none of us knew or something. And it was just like such an opaque process. Basically, as I understand it, and I'm still not certain I have the details right, what it boiled down to is that on two of the three lots that we owned that had parking lot lines on them, because no one had used them for a parking lot for a period of time, they're no longer actually a parking lot, even though they look <laughs> like a parking lot. So there's so much as park a passenger car on it. Like, even though I own the lot, even if I own the car, I cannot do that unless I obtain a four or $5,000 conditional use permit. What was the what? What did the piece of property that was a parking lot formerly revert to? What zoning? It to vacant industrial. Interesting. So, what are the use um, allowances for that zoning yeah. designation? Nothing. You can maybe <laughs> garden on it. <laughs> wow. wow. And the only reason you can maybe garden on it is that people are scared of Alice Waters and Novella Carpenter. Like Ooh. these two farm to table movement uh, permaculturists oh. in this neighborhood. Novella Carpenter, or sorry, uh, yeah, Novella, Novella moved here like years ago and bought a parcel and was like raising goats in Ghost Town, this region that's, that's still pretty economically depressed nearby. And basically, <laughs> like, people are scared of messing with urban gardeners because they look so good politically <laughs> mm. that so, you can kind of just show up and do that. Wow. But other than that, you know. You have to pay fees and you have to wait. Not only that, but you have to wait an indeterminate amount of time. So I want to stop you one second and just make a comment to the listeners. Um, we do have, to answer your question succinctly, Luke, um, many of us have had sort of run-ins or definitely conversations with planning and zoning officials. And I just want to make a comment for the listeners that whenever something like this happens, um, it's normal to sort of feel completely overwhelmed. And it's okay to make the jurisdictional body prove their case like show me the section the segment the paragraph the sentence that says a why can't i do what i'm currently doing and b assuming that's the case what can i do because Um, because often authority human beings in authority positions sometimes especially police officers Correct. will do things to not in, not necessarily intentionally abuse the authority but just step too far over the line and so and and usually human beings on the receiving end of that kind of behavior tend to go along with it because they just see the other human being as an authority figure. Correct. And so what you're saying is, no, you have some freaking rights here. And one of those rights is to know what it is you're being told you can't do. Right. To respectfully, obviously, there's a respect <clears throat> and professionalism yeah. involved, on, on, hopefully on your part, not necessarily the authority figure. Yes. Because they also may be acting on behalf. Normally, zoning regulations are are enforced <clears throat> um, on behalf of complaints. Right. So they have already gotten probably by that point, by the time there's a citation, a shit ton of flack. Um, and they're just trying to like make this go away because yeah. the faster it goes away, the easier it is for them. They may not even be, you know, again, enforcing. There may be absolutely no relevance to their enforcement. Yeah. So asking them and saying, great, thank you very much for letting me know. 
please point me to the direction of the code that you're citing I'm infraction. And then also, what can I do to this resolve this in a Good timely point, manner? Michelle. So I just want to make that point because no, yeah. he had talked about them being sort of very confused and confuddled and still are very confused and confuddled. And I just wanted to say, yep, we all are. I like that word, confuddled. Yeah, Michelle, I can't stress enough how true that is. I would take it even further and say that these people work for you. You yes. pay their salaries. You, I think, have an obligation to treat them as human, even if you're not quite being treated as it by them. Um, but document things. Talk about them. There's been so much of so much of what I read about, you know, the whole Earth Catalog, George Brand, and then the Back to the Land movement. So much of what we're doing is rebuilding things that people did two generations ago because there was such a chilling effect around things like code enforcement. People basically get scared out of documenting their experiences. Yeah. I don't care if you're building like the ugliest thing I've ever seen, the exact opposite of my aesthetic, and you're playing music that I hate. Like Document your experience. People will still learn from it, and it's still important to share it, no matter how much people in the moment might dislike the exact approach you're taking. That's the only way that we're going to actually learn and figure out how to navigate things like code as they are now, one, and two, what they should become and how we can push our communities to make them actually, to make code do what it's actually supposed to do, which in my opinion is keep people safe and encourage affordable, beautiful neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, that, however, I think is is the... That, however, is also part of the point. What he said was, is that the intent of the code is to keep people, um, you know, keep people safe and provide, you know, quality neighborhoods. When, if you actually look at the history of code, which I know that he has done some research on, follow the money, people. Yeah, in, in the development of the code. Exactly. Yeah. So again, talk about conflict of interest. In many cases, codes are being enforced not on behalf of a safe environment, mm-hmm. not on behalf of a sanitary environment. They are being enforced on behalf of other um, fiscal forces, we'll call them. Totally agreed. Um, and to, to take your point even a bit further about asking, like, what is the role and what am I allowed to do? When you get an answer for that, consider it an opinion. Consider it the interpretation of one specific official. Correct. What gets that to change often is a letter from a lawyer. And because lawyers are expensive and big companies tend to have them, this kind of, if you fast forward a couple hundred years, kind of explains how we get ourselves into the situation we're in now, where code moves not from you know, individual rational movement of rational people applying for things and rational people enforcing it, but from bureaucrats doing their job, which is to reduce the likelihood that a city gets sued and not to innovate. There's no incentive for the average inspector who probably is, in my experience, is like a pretty nice person. Like, if I didn't know them in that context, I'd probably, you know, grab a beer with them or invite them on a bike ride. <laughs> but they're just doing their job. And so the, San Francisco. The, right? <laughs> um, the aggregate effect of that is this chilling effect on innovation by small groups and this standardization towards things that only people willing to file a lawsuit to challenge code can actually get it to move anywhere. It's it's funny, Luke, because the, in the article that we found you through, the, the 
person who represents the planning and building department said exactly what you just said about what the bureau, what the what the people who work for the city are there for. It's like she said, or maybe it's a he. Um, they don't do innovation. They don't they don't do creation. All they do is manage enforcement of the code, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. Well, they and don't that, get, they again, well follow the good. money. They don't get paid to. Right. Like, the less, <clears throat> the less wrinkles there are in their paperwork, the less they have to work for their money. It's not like well, they're going to make more money by finding <clears throat> more. Like, if you were to incent them and say, hey, go out and find violations and we'll pay you, we'll pay you X number of dollars for every violation, they'd be all about that. They just want to make shit go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and by, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, ranty on <laughs> code enforcement, but I step after, you know, having gone through a bunch of this bullshit, I stepped back and thought about like, does it actually make sense that this is based on complaints? I was like, wait a minute. If, if I have slightly darker skin and I move into an all white neighborhood and I'm breaking the same rules, am I more or less likely to have breaking the exact same rules as my neighbors, a complaint filed against me. Hmm. So I'd, I'd go so far as to say that this whole complaint-based code enforcement is intrinsically at least having a chilling effect on difference and in reality pretty much just a toll of classism and racism. I totally, 100% agree. Yeah. 100% agree. You're, Here in it, Oregon, we've experienced that definitely. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. complaint, the complaint mechanism um, enforces sameness. Not diversity yeah. mm-hmm. and variety. That's and exactly innovation. Right. And innovation. Mm-hmm. Right. They're which all which on by the definition same plane. is not sameness. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So interesting. Same, sameness. I like that word. So yeah. In the in the process of this round of, of notices of violation, um, in one of the meetings I had with the director of planning and building at the time, who has since left to work for a private company, of course, um, <laughs> I asked her <laughs> I asked her, you know right, you know, Rachel, how Decide, like, I have all these friends who work at these silly dot com companies, and I swear, like, when I visit them at Google or Facebook, they've got people there 24 7. There's people taking naps on couches, they've got showers, they've got cafeterias, they even have laundry machines, and all of this is true, by the way. How do you, how do you decide that someone is actually living somewhere as opposed to using it, you know, just as an office that's open 24 7? Good question. I've thought about that. Important differentiation in planning code, right? Like things that are zoned, like industrial, for example, like the warehouse that I'm talking to you from. You can be there, you can set your operating hours and be there 24-7 as like an artist or whatever. What did she say? She gives me this dirty look and goes, it's on a case-by-case basis. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning it's totally subjective. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that the problem is that we are not fighting Judgments handed down, like that's not her job. She can try to do that, and it is very human and not someone doing something wrong to try to make subjective judgments. But that's not her job, and it's right. illegal. And we need to fight with cities when they decide that it's okay for people to hang out, being programmers, and taking naps on couches twenty four seven in a space. But it's not okay for us and our friends to decide that our tiny houses are a 24-7 art space. That's a really good point. Yeah. I haven't heard this argument Me before. Me neither. So, so have you prevailed? So on that location, 
we've metastasized. Um, <laughs> eventually, after like a year, year and a half, several of my co-founders with it were pretty, like they hadn't been through this experience before and I think weren't quite as excited about spending all their time building tiny homes and challenging this process. So we actually broke up, remember it was three parcels, so we broke it up so that I now individually own one of the parcels. Um, Heather has decided to focus on her art career and moved to LA. Mm. And then uh, one of my friends owns the front parcel with the building on it, and two other friends own the other parcel. So I now have one parcel myself, which I promptly decided to lease. I wish I thought of this years ago, but I found a friend of a friend who was doing something similar in San Francisco called Bus Patch. And Bus Patch is my buddy Spar and his partner, Victoria, and several other folks who have decided that they're going to spend their free time getting really smart about navigating zoning law and very publicly living in vehicles parked on private land. Ooh, that's... So literally now, when you walk up to this space, <laughs> oh, I've, got, I've applied for and got like a year ago the permit to park on our parking lot. So it's now a parking lot when you look at the zoning records. I had to post a <laughs> sign on the wall, this. had to pay $3,200 and had to wait like four months. It was faster than normal, the normal wait because I nagged them about it. Um, Squeaky wheel. Yeah. So now when you go by this property, it's literally my, my third of it is full of buses and there's about a dozen people very there's a, literally a sign explaining what it is on the fence what does it say several neighbors have complained says this is bus, bus patch a community of intentional oh. an intentional community of people living in vehicles and <laughs> and so far i mean it's been about four months now neighbors were really pissed off there was some chatter on like next door and these other forums for people to bitch about things that are different at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't received a notice of violation. It would have it would have came several months ago if nothing had been improved by five minutes by after you got your lot. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um so basically, I mean one, it's cool because now I have like <clears throat> another layer. Like Spar my, my friend who rents it pays me, you know, not much, but so, I mean not much for the Bay Area for a lot. He pays a thousand dollars a month in rent to me, and then you know charges people to to stay in his vehicles there or to park their own. Um, but it's it's this cool other layer where now I'm able to learn via the experience he's going through. And I I joke with him like that when I when I finally decide to develop this with containers and you know I'll have to post probably for a conditional use permit like the little sign mm-hmm. neighbor commentary. They're going to be thrilled to only have containers there rather than buses. Exactly. So much more conventional. Exactly. (laughs) So, Luke, I I have a question about the bus patch situation. How how does bus and we're going to probably have them on the show? But how does how does how do they get around? I thought it was illegal in most of California to live in a vehicle. I think that that is very unclear. Oh. Um, And I think that there will likely several other court cases about it. Hmm. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm becoming way too knowledgeable about the <laughs> law around this. Uh, but what happened, there's a case called, I think it's LA County versus Desert Rain. Someone bothered fighting with LA County when they realized that their RV parked on the street was getting ticketed every 72 hours on the dot. And surrounding vehicles would be there for weeks and not get tickets. Wow. And that's obviously selective enforcement mm-hmm. and very illegal. Mm-hmm. So they've challenged this and 
what happens with a lot of these, unfortunately, is that they end in out-of-court settlements, so they don't become admissions of guilt by the city, and they don't become case law for others to see. But if you look up Desert Rain RV LA or something like that, you'll find more details on it, and it was an out-of-court settlement, I think, with no admission of guilt by the city. Basically, like, people need to do a crowdfunding campaign, and I'm, I'm in for... I will definitely contribute to this if someone wants to do it, or if someone... If a lawyer wants to walk me through it, I'll do it myself. But we need... We need case law expanding on that decision, yeah. expanding on the ruling, I think, in Idaho uh, a year or two ago, where someone bothered challenging their no-sit, no-lie laws that basically make it illegal to be homeless. And the Justice Department told the state of Idaho, hey, uh, it's actually an Eighth Amendment violation against cruel and unusual punishment for you to punish people for sleeping on the street when they have nowhere else to sleep. Wow. Unless you have shelters that everyone can sleep in and every single homeless person, if you have a, you need enough shelter beds and no reason to disqualify anyone who is homeless in your city for that to be legal. That was the Justice Department's advice. It was weird. It didn't get federal. They just gave advice to the state, huh. um, which I'd never heard of before. But yeah, basically, like you can understand why this would be a shit show of contradictory laws because yeah. basically it's only poor people who are getting prosecuted for things like sleeping on the street, obviously, and just public interest groups and other underfunded things that are bothering to, char- to challenge these and people who are desperate for enough money to have a little bit of a buffer who are then taking these settlements. Interesting. So basically we need, I'm convinced that like it's going to take a while, but every city, and again, flashback to bureaucrats being about avoiding risk. What will happen is I or someone else will get pissed off enough about this that we like, park downtown a vehicle like a box house on wheels or whatever and very publicly live in it and like put up a sign saying it's wrong that people are getting arrested and fined for living in vehicles and living on the street and then wait till we get tickets or arrested and then challenge it and end up with a settlement from the city and then every other city is like oh shit we better change these rules before it costs us money and liability. So this is a fascinating story, a lot more fascinating than I actually thought it was going to be. Where do you, where do you, so now that you have the, the, the prop, the third of the property or whatever percentages that you own leased out to bus patch, where are you living now? So we metastasized. One of my friends on this project rented, he, uh, he rented a different parcel in Alameda, which is this island right next door. Mm-hmm. And I, by dumb luck, found space in a warehouse a couple blocks away. So the Bay Area is so insane that it makes sense for me to rent a warehouse to put tiny homes inside of, just to lessen the likelihood of code enforcement happening. So you have people living in your, your, uh, your container houses that are located inside a warehouse. Exactly. And it makes money to do so. Like, the container, building and selling the containers is like, I mean, that loses money. Like, it's, you know, it's early. I'm going through this process with the state that I'll talk about a little more later. But the super boring model of renting a big space yeah. and then renting out smaller portions of it is the thing that, like, pays the bills and keeps me able to work on this full time. Wow, that's it's it's like cool. Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, it's like Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. yeah, And you live in one of those? I do. I actually just moved back into one. I've, I keep kicking myself out of them as I finish them mm-hmm. because I'm, someone will be like, this is cool. Can I rent this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I'm like, 
shit, I'm sleeping on my couch, like in the common area again. <laughs> so I'm going to stop doing that. That's one of my resolutions for like over the next month or two. <laughs> well, Luke, it's, it's, it's been a fascinating show and we didn't even get to uh, Box House at all. So um, maybe in a couple months we can have you back on and you can talk a little bit about how, how you uh, started um, renovating containers and what your process is. Yeah, the one thing I would like to, to mention on that, and this isn't, it'll be reflected by the time this show gets out, but I just finished the process of becoming legal statewide as a manufacturer of factory-built housing. Wow. So box houses get built in my warehouse, stamped by the state, as fully inspected, wow. then I can ship them anywhere in California. They don't get reinspected. We just pull a permit for a foundation and utility hookups, and that's it. Wow! So it's going to make it way easier to put these in people's yards. Yeah, that's freaking <laughs> awesome, man. Good job for fighting the good fight and prevailing. Actually, it's been a process. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah, we'd love to hear more in the future. Um, so. Tiny House listeners, this I have to say, this is one of the most fascinating stories we've heard in a while, actually. Maybe it's because we haven't recorded a show in a month. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, it's the best in a month. Yeah, best in a month. <laughs> so far. So far, so good. So tune in next week. We're going to have another outstanding show, as we usually do. And um, let me just put a, a plug in for our show. Please tell your friends about our show because, as you can tell, you keep coming back, listeners. So you must think it's a pretty good show. So well, now it's going to be hard friend. to miss because we're on all the, we're going to be on all those really those other podcast sites too. Yeah. So your friends will have a much easier time finding it, no matter what subscription service they're subscribing to. Unless it's Pandora, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we're now on Google Play. This is our official announcement. Google, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We just made on so, Google Play. Welcome Android listeners. Exactly. All Yay. you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Uh, tune in next week. Talk to you later. Bye. Be good to each other. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>